And if you're remaining in the room, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 7. Mark is the second of the four Gospels. And we're going to read verses 1 through 8. I'll give you just a second to find it. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you thankful for the gift of your word, for the power contained therein and the opportunity we have uh, to, to approach your heavenly throne and receive from you instruction, teaching, encouragement, guidance. Lord, we seek you now. Open our eyes that we would see our ears that we would hear. Open our minds that we would come to know and understand your word and indeed your ultimate will. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, that we would feel its power. And by your grace, open our hands, that we would in response offer grace to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, do we have any Aggies in the room? Okay, at least at that, yeah, uh, I did... I asked for that. I'm sorry if, uh, if you're not. Um, so so there's, a, there's a couple of traditions in Aggieland, right? It, it might be one of the more tradition-oriented universities in, uh, in the world. Uh, and they make jokes like if something's done twice at Texas A&M, it becomes a tradition, right? Uh, we, we, we build up tradition after tradition after tradition. Uh, there's some of them that we don't really understand. There's some of them that we do. There's 12th man, there's mustard, there's something about a tree and weddings and stuff. Uh, like there's all, all sorts of traditions at Aggieland, like not walking on grass. What is grass made for? Um, and so you have all of these things that build up over time, but don't let, let, the Aggies just own the space. All of you other fools have traditions as well. I have been on 12 university visits in the last 12 months, and every single one of them tout their traditions, and they're all just as silly as the next. And yes, 
I said it. So all of you have your own little things, but I have questions. Over the course of time, do you realize where those traditions came from or why they continue? And are there ever any questions? Is there ever any relative examination uh, on why we do it and if we should actually continue them? Sometimes traditions become traditions for tradition's sake and the meaning, the power, and the purpose are washed away. So what we encounter in Scripture today, and actually it's, it's relevant to where I just came from this week. I was at the first annual conference of the Eastern Texas Conference of the Global Methodist Church. It was an extraordinary occasion. 1,350 people filled uh, a sanctuary to worship the Lord, to, to hear from the, from the Lord as to what was going on in the Global Methodist Church across this region. And it was so encouraging. We met in February for a convening conference, and just a few months later, we returned for annual conference. But you remember that Aggie tradition, right? Uh, if you do something twice, it becomes tradition. Well, I I was a part of working and coordinating uh, this uh, conference, and one of the things I kept examining was, if we do it again, people are going to say, this is the way it always should be. So I had to ask, do we do that a second time or not? Let's weigh that in the balance and consider. Because if we repeat it, and we keep repeating it, and there's no power or authority in it, then we have empty traditions yet again. A few examples. Yesterday was our ordination worship service. Awesome. In February, we ordained 90, 90 individuals to the glory of God and service of God as representatives uh, in the church. Uh, Pastor Dario was ordained in February. It was magnificent. Well, this time we ordained 71 ordinands. 161 ordinands in six months. That's nuts. And it was so beautiful, and the worship was powerful. And here was one of the questions we had when we were designing that service. In February, we sang 17 verses of oh, 04,000 tongues to sing. Did you know that there were 17 verses of oh, 04,000 tongues to sing? Raise your hand if you have ever sung all 17 verses other than those of you that were at annual conference, okay? <laughs> like, uh, that, yep, I had three hands, annual conference, annual conference. You're the only ones. Well, we came into planning and we were examining, should we sing that again? Because if we sing all 17 verses, it will be forever written into lore that at the Eastern Texas Annual Conference of the Global Methodist Church, when it comes to ordination, we sing all 17 verses of a fourth. Well, we did it again. And we're stuck. But it's good. I'm okay with it. You know why? Because all 1,350 people gathered together in passion and in authority with conviction and confidence. And as we raised our more than a thousand tongues to sing of our great Redeemer's praise, the Spirit of the living God met with us again and again 
And if it becomes a tradition, I pray that that would be the reason. Not because we did it and kept doing it, but because God is and always will be worthy of that great glory. We have uh, other traditions that are being formed both times in February and uh, just this week, we had a workshop on Wesleyan discipleship. You know, Wesleyan discipleship is a very methodical way of making disciples. It, it focuses on how we, in, in transformative relationships, grow in holiness of heart and life, pursuing godliness with sisters and brothers. And we want to encourage that all across this region. We want to encourage that at Covenant in our church, and that is building up. And you're going to hear so much more about that this fall as we continue to pursue God in small groups. Well, we had that session, and, and I want to give, give Zach a word of props. He was on the team that presented, and, uh, and, and in the ministry session, he stood before the whole body, and he told everybody, look, if we're going to be doing discipleship uh, in the way that, that pursues godliness, where people are seeking after Jesus, it will always and every time be devotional and transformational and missional. This is the core essence of discipleship. And, and, and as the people rallied around that, there's truth, there's, there's power. I walked up to John Wayne McMahon, pastor at First Conroe, and uh, after he taught the workshop, and I said, I believe that every single annual conference we need to talk about discipleship, because if we as a church forget about making disciples, then we are worthless and empty, and we shouldn't even exist. We must be focused on what is a disciple and how do we make them. We must be focused on that individually. We must be focused on that as a church. We must be focused on that as a denomination because we are a part of the Global Methodist Church and we will make disciples of Jesus Christ. That has to be our aim. And I'm okay with that tradition as long as it becomes singularly focused, consistent in every way, focused on Jesus there was another thing that we did, and, and I actually had the microphone at this moment. I was, uh, uh, we, we called forth the new church starts that are forming in our conference. And we did this in February, and in February, we welcomed seven new churches, seven churches that had been formed in the Eastern Texas Conference. We welcomed them to the altar, the pastors, the laity. They knelt there. We laid hands of blessing over them and their ministries that were forming. And, and just a few months later, remember February to July, we gathered together, and we had 10 more churches planted to make 17 churches planted in the last few months. How magnificent is that? And so I came to the microphone to offer prayer blessing, and, and folks came forward just as we did with our students to lay hands on these laity and these, and these clergy and to bless their ministries, bless their new churches. And I went to the mic and I said, let this always become a tradition, a tradition of blessing and a tradition of church planting, because there are people that don't know Jesus, and churches need to be planted in communities so that others more and more will know about Jesus. This is the work of planting. You and I, this church, is a church plant. And that's more recent in our memory because we planted this church in 2011, launching worship in January of 2012. That's not that long ago, people. But there are more churches that need to be planted. And so we gathered around and we laid hands of blessing. And that, I pray, becomes a tradition that we would be about 
planting churches, a denomination that constantly seeks to save the lost. And just as that happened with us at Covenant, I pray it happens at all of these other churches. What organizations were you a part of that established traditions? Any fraternities or sororities in the, in the room? Raise your hand. I need to know. Oh my gosh, y'all are being super bashful. I already put you to sleep. Any fraternities or sororities? Okay, there's literally only a few. Um, that's shocking to me, actually. Um, so I wasn't cool enough to be in a fraternity or sorority, and so that means that I'm in good company in here because evidently there's a lot of people that weren't either. Uh, I was in the Centenary College Choir. Uh, yes, I was a choir boy in college. We traveled around the world. We sang. Uh, I sang before the president a few times. That's me trying to, to validate the fact that I was in the choir rather than in something cool. Um, but, but we, as other organizations, also had hazing. I think it was our attempt to be like, fraternity, like a fraternity. So we had hazing. I can't tell you what the hazing was. But we had some hazing. And, and I remember whenever I was a freshman and I entered into it, I didn't realize that there would be hazing. I just entered into a choir. <laughs> There's not supposed to be hazing in a choir, I thought. And then the first night, whenever the hazing began, I wondered if I wanted to be there. I mean, at least if you were entering a fraternity or sorority, you knew that there was hazing. Everybody knows that that goes I had no clue. And I was furious that I was enduring this ridiculousness. But then whenever I was on the other side of it... Uh, you know, you know what that's like. When you're on the other side of the hazing, then it's your turn to, to get that pound of flesh from someone else. Like you're going to lay it on them. There was one night in particular that was immensely rowdy, and it was unbelievable being on the side of the hazer, but I didn't think ever to, to wonder, what is this moment like for the one being hazed? I mean, we were, it was nuts. And it had totally failed in honoring the validity of a tradition. The tradition was designed at its core to, to teach the history and heritage of the choir, of the organization, and to invite people to invest fully into that because of the power that we inherited. But in that moment, and many moments like it, the hazing had nothing to do with passing on the legacy and had everything to do with jokes and giggles. So how do we constantly about examining what is this tradition? Why does it matter? Is there still power? Is there still authority? Or does it need to be burned as dross and thrown away? We have to test these things. We have to put them up against something that is lasting, something that is secure. And, and, and so we need to come to this text and we need to come to Jesus in Mark chapter 7 and we need to examine it fully because we can be tempted in Mark chapter 7 to think that Jesus is saying one thing, but it's not that at all. And we got to get clear on the differentiation. 
When we read Mark chapter 7, there's an official delegation of Jewish authorities that are coming to meet with Jesus. It might not seem like that at first, but this is legit. The Pharisees and some teachers of the law came from Jerusalem and gathered around Jesus. This wasn't, there's a whole bunch of people around Jesus. Some of them happen to be Pharisees and teachers of the law, and they happen to have this encounter. No. There are Pharisees and teachers of the law in Jerusalem. They together as a delegation leave Jerusalem and go and find Jesus to meet with Jesus and test whether or not they believe what Jesus is doing is faithful or not. And so what do they see when they get there? They see that, that, that Jesus' disciples... Don't go through ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. And as they witness this, they challenge Jesus on it. And they say, Jesus, why do your disciples not go through the ceremonial washing? Why do they not obey the tradition? Why is it that they are lacking in the faithfulness to the tradition of the elders? Now, at first glance, some of you might be thinking, well, Jesus is caught guilty because that's gross. You should wash your hands before you eat. I mean, have any of you read this text and thought, hey, I'm for hand washing Jesus? What's going on here? Well, we missed that point. Uh, and many of us also wonder, like, hey, uh, these Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're saying that this is supposed to happen. That Jesus' disciples are being unfaithful in their practice. And then Jesus comes and defends them. So we might assume ignorantly that, that Jesus is telling the Pharisees, is telling the teachers of the law that you need to dismiss this command of God. And that his disciples are okay with taking a partial gospel. I mean, some of us might have looked at this and seen that Jesus said, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you missed the boat. My disciples are okay with doing whatever they want. That's not what Jesus is saying here. There are three passages of scripture in the in the Torah that talk about this mealtime, uh, two of them are related specifically, directed specifically to priest and ceremonial hand washing for priests as they enter into the temple. So we could examine this really quickly. Are Jesus' disciples Jewish priests? No. Were they entering the temple as they were needing to wash their hands. No. Remember the Pharisees teach the law. They left Jerusalem. The temple's in Jerusalem. So no and no. So those two scriptures, they're not applicable. So let's read the scripture that would be applicable to what uh, Jesus' disciples were doing. They were feasting. They were eating. And so we're going to turn to Deuteronomy uh, chapter uh, 8. Just one single verse. Verse 10 and it talks about uh, approaching, it's a law, it's a shall word in scripture. Uh, it talks about how we should approach eating. Deuteronomy 
When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord for the good land he has given you. So a a few things that are a totally different sermon uh, because we have uh, changed the scripture when it comes to how we approach eating. I mean, uh, some of us gather around table and before we put a, a bite of food into our mouth or if we have children that are rushing to eat as they are chewing their first bite of food, we gather for prayer and we pray blessing over the food. Uh, and in Scripture, that's totally not necessary. Now, it's not bad. It's not, it's, not, it's not inappropriate to thank God for food or to pause before we eat, but that's not the Scripture. Did you hear what the Scripture said? It said, after you eat and are satisfied. After you eat and are satisfied, you're to thank God, to give God praise. So... Our tradition that's been established of praying before, praying blessing before, that's not in Scripture. Our tradition of, uh, of uh, giving thanks for the food, that's also not in Scripture because the Scripture is very specific in the shall language. We're to thank God for the land. Did you hear that? When, the, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you to remind us that it has come from God's creation. If we are talking about the food, then sometimes we can get it mixed up. And these are good things to talk about the wonderful waiter or waitress that brought the food to our table or to talk about the chef that did an extraordinary, exquisite job of making it. Or we might be confused in thinking that we're talking about the truck driver or the Uh, planter or the grower but in scripture all those are good things remember not bad all good but the scriptural mandate is to thank God for the land the land that creation from the very beginning when God from formless chaos created The earth and the sky, the sun and the moon and the stars, the land and the animals that would graze upon it. So whenever we hear this scripture, Deuteronomy 8, chapter 10, we should wonder what in the world were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law challenging Jesus and his disciples about Because there was nothing in that scripture about washing your hands. And specifically, there was nothing in that scripture about ceremonially washing your hands. Now, that hand washing was a tradition of, quote, the elders that came after the Torah. So there is the law, there is Deuteronomy 8.10, and there is the interpretation of that and the addition on top of that that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law imposed upon the people. And they made this extensive ceremony about how to wash your hands. 
It's almost like those signs in the bathroom that tell you how many seconds you have to wash and what the temperature needs to be and then whether or not you can touch the door on your way out. Now, now I know I'm talking hygiene now, so all of you uh, who are particularly like, like feeling that, God bless you. Though it, It's like that, but different because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law impose that upon all the Jews. And here's what Jesus tells them. Jesus says you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites. Because the heart of the gospel of God, you're missing. And you're giving preference to man-made traditions over and above God and godliness. He says, you honor, you honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. This oral tradition that you've built up is now superseding the law and the heart of the law. And whenever you ignore the law and the heart of the law, you have totally missed it. You've become legalist and legalistic. And in the way you have done that, you have oppressed your people so that they now can't even see God because all they could see is your ritual. They get stuck pursuing the wrong things because you stand those wrong things up as barriers between the people and God. I was honored to, to have uh, the gift of being in worship on Friday night at, at annual conference. Uh, and, and as we worshiped, I want you to know the spirit of the living God literally shook the room. You could feel a holy shaking as the fire of God fell upon the people of God. And it was, it was an anointing and an awakening and an empowerment of the Holy Spirit that I will never, ever forget. And the preacher for that worship service was Lexi Hull. Lexi is a 17-year-old rising senior at the Woodlands High School. And she was filled with the Holy Spirit. She articulated the truth of the gospel with such clarity, passion, and purpose that I was moved. And she anchored uh, herself uh, in God's word and, and, and made sure that, that she didn't stray or deviate from it. She was in 1 Timothy 4 verse 12 uh, and the surrounding verses. But this 1 Timothy 4 12 was so potent and so beautiful. Uh, and, and she focused us and, and the people of God on this clearly. She said, uh, she read that don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct in love and faith and in purity. And there is so much that she brought to bear through the power of the Holy Spirit for the people of God. But one thing I want you to hear that, that stuck with me and continues to, uh, to, to echo in my mind, she said to all of us, she said, pursue God, pursue godliness, and all of the characteristics of godliness will be yours. She was telling particularly the students that were in the, in the room, the young that were in the room, she said, young believers, 
You might pursue holiness in speech, holiness in conduct, holiness in love, holiness in faith, holiness in purity. But if you are singularly focused on the characteristics and you miss the one who gave us the characteristics and the reflection that that, that, that is for, then you are missing the boat. Seek God, seek godliness, and the characteristics will follow. And if at any point we are distracted or deterred from the mission of becoming like Jesus, then we are in error. This is what Jesus was saying in Mark chapter 7. This is the reason for the law. This is the reason for the word of God. This is the reason for Jesus. This is the reason why he was even present there to speak with them. It's because God was pursuing his people, seeking you and me and inviting us and asking us, come, follow me, be like me, pursue me, want me, desire me, and, 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 and all these things will be added to you if you seek me first, if you seek me and my kingdom This is where you are called to be and to move. If you and I would would follow after God, seek Jesus with our whole hearts, everything else will fall fully into place. Jesus goes on in Mark 7 and talks about the difference between what we put in us and what flows forth from us. And Jesus is pointing out for each and every one of us that if we put in ourselves godliness, if we are constantly pursuing Jesus, then the witness of Christ will flow forth from us to the world. Let you and I be a single-minded people focused on Jesus, first, last, and in the middle. And in this way, we will be found and made righteous because it is not by our own strength and doing, but by the one that took on the cross, took on our sin, and conquered sin and death on our behalf. Would you seek Jesus with me as we pursue discipleship together? Let's pray. Holy God, we seek a a spiritual rumbling, a earth shaking. We desire your spirit and we ask, oh God, that you would pour your spirit out. Lord, we ask that you would would help us to to follow you with our whole hearts, that, that, that our desire would be only you. And that as we desire you, Lord, we ask that our lives would more and more become a reflection of you to the world, that, that uh, we, we know your truth, that we were made in your image and in your likeness, and then there was distortion and, and a, a deterrence through the fall, but yet you've made a way, and so we seek that way, the narrow path that is holiness in pursuit of you. Lord, pour out your spirit on us. We need you. We can't do it on our own. We don't want any tradition. We don't want any ritual. We don't want, we don't want anything that would obstruct the path to you. Let everything we do, every tradition we have, be tested against your desire and will for our lives. 
Lord, as we continue in worship and we enter into this time of offering, Lord, I pray that you will bless the gifts that are given, and I pray that you will bless the givers as well, that all that is done in this space and this time would be for your glory, honor, and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said.